Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this week is week number three of our 2017 seasonal play readings. This week's play is an offering entitled Never Wear a Dead Man's Shoes. The playwright is an old friend of ours, Judd Lear Silverman. Longtime On Stage, Off Stage listeners may remember him as one of our first guests from way back in 2013. The cast and players are as follows. Betty is played by Paige Anderson. Sylvia is played by Mara Stevens. And Oren is played by Scott Rougeau. The setting? Aunt Betty's bedroom on Thanksgiving. Oren stands next to his Aunt Betty, who is holding a pair of shoes. Well, here they are. Aren't they just like I told you? Yes, pretty much. Nice, huh? Nice. Black wingtips never go out of fashion. What size do you wear? Nine and a half. They should fit. Your Uncle Buddy wore ten, but men's feet were smaller then. How old are they? Let's see. He died five years ago. I kept him in the closet. He probably bought them a good... Now wait. It was before his first stroke. I really... Eight years. Ten years tops. And men's feet were smaller then? What? You said men's feet were smaller ten years ago. Well, your feet certainly were. But we're talking about Uncle Buddy's feet. I was cleaning out the closet and I just thought... Oren could wear these. You were his favorite nephew. I was his only nephew. Well, Linda, before her operation... Uh, I forgot. It was kind of you, but... Try them on. If they fit, you'll take them. If not, I'll give them to someone else. Well, go on. They won't bite. It's it's just that... Well, I mostly wear sneakers and, and hiking shoes. Where will I An ever... opportunity will present itself. Buddy only wore them once. Twice at the most. Go on. There you are. We were wondering where you two had... Oh, my God! What the hell do you think you're doing? Stop that! What? Are those what I think those are, Betty? Have you gotten totally insane? What? Aren't those Buddy's shoes? You know about Uncle Buddy's shoes? Honestly, Syl, I don't know what business it is of yours. Oren's my favorite nephew. Your only nephew, actually... Oh, that's right. Linda. Linda. I forbid you to try on those shoes. It's not yours to forbid. Buddy was my husband. What's the big deal? They're just a pair of shoes. Your lack of responsibility, Betty, is shameless. Shameless. I can't believe such carelessness on the part of my own sister. It's just an old wives' tale anyway. What? What? Will someone please tell me what's going on? Tell him, Betty. Sylvia. Tell me what? If you don't, I will. Your Aunt Sylvia is concerned In our religion, there's an old saying. A superstition, really. You're never supposed to wear a dead man's shoes. What? Never wear a dead man's shoes. Why? It's a curse or something. You're supposed to bury him or burn him. That's ridiculous and a waste of a good pair of shoes. I'm just stating what the legend says. So I'm not supposed to... Sylvia, you yourself have been wearing that big old cable-knit sweater of Buddy's for years now. I like that sweater. That that was Uncle Buddy's? Nothing's happened to you, has it? Is a sweater a pair of shoes? Huh? Seriously, Syl, I think that rinse you've been using is seeping into your brain. What did you come in here for, anyway? Well, everyone else is getting hungry and ready for dinner. When are we going to serve? Damn, I meant to put out the liver and the crackers. God, you'd think no one in this family had ever eaten before. Oren, you try on those shoes. I'll be right back. Don't feel obligated to take a lousy old pair of shoes, Oren. 
You're a young man, and you should have a new pair of shoes. Are they really cursed? I can't say that they are. I can't say that they aren't. All I know is the saying, never wear a dead man's shoes. They are nice looking. I, I could wear them for a kick. Your Uncle Buddy always had a pair of wingtips. He was a sharp dresser, Buddy was. Always looked real sharp. I remember that. But a dead man's a dead man. Betty's always been such a fool, laughing in the face of danger. Are we talking about the same Aunt Betty? You didn't know her as a girl. Trust me. Well, Sylvia, what did you do with the cocktail napkins? Like I would touch your cocktail napkins? That woman. No wonder Buddy died. It was his only way out. Aunt Sylvia, she's your sister. I know. And I love her like I love all my blood relations. She's just a little... Sylvia! I better go help her or ten people are going to stand around staring at a plate of chopped liver. And your aunt won't give them a cracker without the goddamn napkins. But should I try... Oren, I love you like a nephew. I am your nephew. Err on the side of centuries of wisdom. Or use your best judgment. Sylvia! All right already! Keep your shoes on. Come have some liver. She exits. Oren looks after her a minute and starts to put on his own shoes. Then he stops and looks over at the black wingtips. He tries to laugh it off, but finds himself drawn to them. He looks at one for a moment, then puts it on. It's a perfect fit. Hmm. Comfortable. He puts the other one on. They fit like a glove. Wow. Say, these feel uh, pretty... Suddenly, he begins to shake. His gyrations start from the tips of his shoes and work their way to the top of his head. His whole body starts to shake as if he were a pressure cooker about to explode. The climax comes, and surprisingly, he makes merely a simple... All movement ceases, and he looks peaceful. Just then, Sylvia comes back in. Oren, shake a leg. Your cousin Helen's already made off with the drumstick. Oren just looks at her in an almost carnal fashion. Oren? He smiles like a cat who has swallowed the canary. Sylvia immediately becomes alarmed. I know that look. <laughs> Buddy, is that you? Hey, Syl, I'm back. What are you doing here? Where's Oren? Always was a nice kid, that, that Oren. Buddy, you go back to where you came from. Can't do that, Syl. Can't or won't? It's Thanksgiving, for Christ's sake. I've missed you, Sylvia. You mean you still feel things even after... Eternity's a long, long time. I ain't been gone that long. Look, buddy, in the first place, you shouldn't even be in it's here. It's my house! It's Oren's body, if you want to get technical about it. And even if it was your house, it's Betty's now. She's the hostess tonight for crying out loud. Betty always did a nice Thanksgiving dinner. And she's my sister, buddy. So? She's my wife. Didn't stop us before, did it? That was different. How? Well, for one thing, you were alive. Uh, point taken. Still... It was wrong when you were alive. It's even wronger now that you're dead. I was going to say in Oren's body. He's a cute kid, but here's my nephew. It's too weird. Why? You've never fantasized about a younger lover? <laughs> Is Oren going to remember any of this? I don't think so. Well, although I can't promise. I mean, I've never done this before. No, I can't. 
I mustn't. We're having my far-fell stuffing, and I only made one trip. But I've missed you! Sylvia, where'd you put the... She stops dead in her tracks. Oh. My God. Hello, Betty. I didn't set enough places at the table. Are you staying for dinner? Nah. I just came to settle some unfinished business. What sort of business? Betty, I don't think we should be even talking to him. It's not natural. What's not natural? You're in someone else's body. Well, Orrin was his favorite nephew. Yeah. How's uh, Linda adjusting? Oh, better than you'd expect. She became an orthodontist. Buddy, you're ruining the holiday. What were you saying about unfinished business? I came back because I'm lonely. You missed the shoes? I missed you, Syl. Buddy, not fun. What are you saying, Buddy? You came back for company? In a way. I thought I might take some company back with me. I'm in the middle of serving dinner right now. I meant Sylvia, Betty. You want... I, I thought you should have more than my old sweater to keep you warm. Buddy Horowitz, are you telling me that you came back today, of all days, to take away my sister and not me? Betty, I, I can explain. Betty, let's face it. We were happy, but you stole me away from Sylvia in the first place. I... That's true, Betty. I dated him three times before you ever laid your mitts on him. That was so long ago. Remember that night at the movies, Syl? And if you had to remember... Sylvia! That was the movie we saw. You let me get to first base. You didn't score a home run. I can't believe it. All these years, and I never knew. Oh, who are you kidding, Betty? You knew, and that's why you went after me. It just made you want me more. Someone has a high opinion of himself. So were you unfaithful? Betty, I, I, there were stolen moments, furtive glances. Uh, that time at your cousin Arthur's funeral? Betty, <laughs> I thought my chinchilla coat looked matted after that funeral. Sylvia, how could you? He was my one true love, the one that would have made me happy. What about Stan? You met Stan. You know Stan. She divorced Stan. Shut up, buddy. This is between me and Sylvia. Hey, I didn't come back to be excluded. Did you come back just to start trouble? I came back for Sylvia. And not for me. Sorry, Betty. Well, you mean tonight? Tonight? Tonight. Oh, well, I couldn't tonight. I have a house full of family. Sylvia, you go with him. Betty? Hey, look. You wanted him so much, now you can have him. Go with him, whatever. You have my blessing. I'm going back to the dinner table. I never meant to hurt you, Betty. It's just that I found out that Sylvia was the one I was supposed to go through eternity with. I get to keep the house. Yeah, sure. Happy Thanksgiving, Sylvia. <laughs> Well, Sil, you ready? I'm, I'm really flattered, buddy, that you went to all this trouble, but I... Ah, oh, don't be a wet blanket, baby. Come here and give your buddy a kiss. <laughs> hmm. Wouldn't you be more comfortable if we did 
Whoa. <laughs> sure, baby. Whatever turns you on. Sylvia smiles at him and begins to unbuckle his belt. As they both stand, she opens his pants, which fall down, revering Oren's patterned briefs. <laughs> the things these kids think look good. <laughs> Sit down, big boy, so I can get them off. Sylvia tries to pull the pant legs down over the shoes, but has trouble. <laughs> I have to... Do what you gotta do, Sylvia. Sylvia unties one shoe, teasingly. She laughs. He laughs. She unties the other shoe. Suddenly, his expression turns to horror. Uh, no! Sylvia, don't! Gotcha! With which she simultaneously yanks both wingtips off his feet. Orrin's head drops to his chest and his arms go limp. I'll go when I'm good and ready, you old fool. She drops the shoes in his lap. Suddenly, Orrin comes to. Aunt Sylvia? Orrin, what happened? The shoes didn't fit. Oh. Pull up your pants. Everyone's eating already. End of play. That was Never Wear a Dead Man's Shoes by playwright Judd Lear Silverman. The cast and players, Betty was played by Paige Anderson, Sylvia by Morris Stevens, Oren by Scott Rougeau, and Uncle Buddy by Michael Donato. Judd Lear Silverman was kind enough to give us a few moments of his time to talk about the play. Yes, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage, Judd Lear Silverman. Thank you. Happy to be back. <laughs> we are happy to have you. Uh, yeah, so we just heard Never Wear a Dead Man's Shoes, and uh, as you can tell, the, the cast had some fun with that. Uh, the question they want to ask you, and the question, I, of course, I want to ask you is... Uh, where did this play come from? Well, it's funny that uh, I've got actually a very funny story about it. Uh, but first, going to the derivation, I've heard that it may be somewhere in the Kabbalah. I've heard all these different theories, but I've tried to track it down and never found the origin of the uh, sentence. But the story of how it happened, how it came about, is even is is funny. Uh, I still am pretty much a veteran flea market person. I love flea markets. I just love seeing, especially if they're not the real crafty uh, sales ones, but the ones where people really bring out things that they've either found in estate sales or things that are in their own basements that they want to sell and get rid of. And we have a great one in my neighborhood. I used to go there, and my friend Marilyn one day says to me, Judd, Judd, do you need a pair of, of wingtips? I said, why? She said, well, they're my brother's wingtips. I've had them in a closet for years. My daughter Andrea says, Mom, Mom, get rid of the shoes. And I really didn't want to, but she thought, nah, I'll give it a shot, see if there's something. So are you interested in the wingtips, or are you afraid of the saying? I said, what saying? She said, you never wear dead man's shoes? I said, what? She said, never wear dead man's shoes. I gave her a big kiss. I ran home and wrote the play. And it wrote like it, the first draft of it wrote like in, a, in an hour, two hours tops. It was just so you see, it, pay, it pays to patronize your local flea market. It does because you'll get more than you ever bar bargained for. Anyhow, uh, so they've had this 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 uh, flea market has been there for about thirty years. I actually got one other short piece out. Do you remember there was a series called? Um, 
Uh, Tales from the Crypt. Yes, absolutely. Well, anyhow, one day I was at the flea market, and I bought a um, a Ouija board because I'd never had one. Right. <laughs> and I took it home, and it was doing strange things. And I came up with a whole idea for a script about what if you brought home a Ouija board, and by doing that, you brought home a spirit with it, who in this case was named Helen. Uh, I'm trying to remember how the story went, but again, flea market finds are wonderful for writing. Did you actually take the shoes? No. Oh, okay. With a warning like that? Are you kidding? Wow. Well, all right. Well, it's, it's I decided. Well, to... she claimed that he only wore them once or twice, and they did look pretty new. Well, sure. uh, but, but eh, no. it, it just. Uh, just but didn't do it for me. You, you got to admit, Buddy is a personality and a force of nature. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, yes, absolutely. But I did a little but bit I of think research that's part on the this. fun of writing. I mean, uh, I, as I explained to my playwriting students, when you set out to write something, you never know what character is going to want to hijack your play. Uh, it's like yeah. a little open, <laughs> and out they come. Mm -hmm. And personality by the by the gallons and then you have to figure out what am i going to do with them am i still going to be able to tell my story they have a will of their own they do have a will of their own okay so let's all right let's jump on this because this, this is a question i come up with a lot talking to other playwrights and some playwrights basically say you know well i i write everything out on index cards and then i follow the script and to me that leaves nothing to random chance but when you do come up with a a buddy character or, you know, a similar uh -huh. thing. What do you tell your students about running with it? I mean, is that something they don't expect to hear a playwright say, well, I let the play take over. I let the character take over. How does that work in the classroom? Oh, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I'm very open about it. I explain to them, for example, I have many friends, as I'm sure you do, who swear by, uh, outlines and index cards Absolutely, and they get up yeah. at four in the morning before they go to work and they write the scenes that they've got planned on their index cards god bless them <laughs> and and some of them that i know are actually very good at doing that if it works for them great yeah. it's the same thing that i say to my freshman writers i said we're going to learn how to do an outline uh how many of you here like doing outlines how many of you don't? And when, when the kids who don't raise their hands, I raise mine too. I said, we're going to do an outline on this particular occasion to study a structure, to understand a structure. But if you've got a logical organization in your head, learning how to trust that is the best way to write. Um, and likewise, I say to uh, one of the techniques I use with my students, uh, I, I use an, uh, an acronym. I call it CASE, C-A-S-E. Uh -huh. And basically, I talk about character, action, setting, and event. And I said, making a clear decision about what those four things are sets you up to do the writing. It doesn't tell you how the story is going to go. It doesn't tell you how uh, things are going to wrap up. It doesn't set up your four... But if you've set those four things up, then you're ready to play. And then you just have to open up and listen. These characters are going to behave a certain way in a given setting 
given a certain event. And that, I find, creates a, a much more organic way of writing, especially if you are character-driven right. in your writing, which I tend to be. Well, you put the scene um, first. I mean, like like myself, I always go with character over plot. Well, I, certainly that's where I go. But I also point out to them, in fact, it was very funny. I've used that technique of those four items for years, but it was only in the recent like, two or three years that I went, oh, God, it forms an acronym of case. Because I've always argued that each time you may find that a different thing will lead you to the play. For example, uh, the event might be um, the birth of Bigfoot's baby uh-huh. that she saw on a, you know, on a, a trash tabloid somewhere. And then you go, okay, so if that's the event, where are we? Well, you could do it in a New York hospital and all these uptown people trying to figure out how to deal with uh, the birth of a Bigfoot. Or you could go to the Ozarks somewhere. Uh, and it depends if it's current or, or past tense. And then, then I'm saying, well, what type of people, if we're in the Ozarks or if we're in the in a mountain area in middle America, who are the characters? Do I really want to watch someone pushing out Bigfoot's baby? I said, no, what if it's like 4 o'clock in the morning at the local all-night diner? And Betty, the waitress, is there you know, putting things out. She knows sometimes Doc, who she's secretly sweet on, uh, has a thing for pie, so she always holds one piece of pie for him, you know, in reserve. And sure enough, Doc comes in. She says, "Doc, you look horrible." He says, oh, "I had to go up and deliver another Bigfoot baby." <laughs> and, and a whole thing sort of transpires out of this event in a trickle-down fashion. And then, as a result, the action comes of why these people are together in this place as a result of the event. So in that case, the event led it. Um, certainly a pregnancy out of wedlock could be an issue for some people. Some people not. Hmm. Certainly if it happens in the city or the country, uh, makes a difference. What year it's in makes a huge difference. It's a very huge what thing. if it's interracial relationship? In other words, all these different factors are there. So I don't think you always have to go CASE, but I do think it's interesting because, as I say, if if I have an instinct for a character and where they are and how how they grew or what they're what brought them there. You put them in a room, and I'll find something to do with them. My last play, I had one character who was going to be sort of a, a figurehead, and she became, she started talking in a way that I had never, ever planned for her uh -huh. to go. And all of a sudden, the play just went, instead of just going nice and straight down the line, it took a left turn into an area that I did not have a map for. But what she was saying was so... She just ran with it, with, with everything you're talking about, with the event, the situation, the action, the character, everything played into this, and somewhere in, in, in the reeking, fetid cracks of my mind, she started coming out with all these unbelievable things, and bang! She just grabbed the play and ran with it, but it's fun. Oh, it's, definitely. It's I mean, it's funny. I had, a, a, I had lunch with a former student today, and we were talking about writing, and I said, it's really funny. Uh, people look at you 
oddly. And of course, hopefully in the same way that actors learn technique and then go to play a role and leave the technique home. You know, it's, it's already in there, and then you just have to be in the moment. Right. Uh, I find that for a good writer, you learn these techniques, but then you have to learn to shut up and take dictation. Let it come in. Absolutely. So you've got all these playwriting students, and you're obviously working on technique. You're working on building the structure. You're working on veracity of character, that sort of thing. It's fun. And then, as I say, we, I tell them in the casting pool, we, can, we will be anything you want us to be. We can be men. We can be women. We can be trees. We can be aliens. We can be anything you want. So just use us how you will. And we don't get to see the script beforehand. It's a cold read. And I tell them, you know, it's at this stage of the game, you don't want necessarily a trained actor who knows how to save something or to deliver it in a way that the line will work. You want to hear what the words are doing on their own. True. And, uh, and then it's funny, too, because... Having a trained actor come in to read their work give them a different perspective at, on something like this? At the end of the class, I, at the end of the semester, I do that. I have a get-together where I bring in an ensemble of six professional actors uh, who then will read an evening of their work. And uh, that's a very thrilling experience for them because then they see what the potential is of what actors and other collaborators can do with that work. But uh, but the words have to do the work first. What kind of reaction do you get from the playwrights on hearing their work read by, you know, quote, unquote, professional actors? Because everything up until now oh, is development. Oh, it's, 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 uh, it's thrilling for them. I mean, it's Jewish mother that I am. I said a cavell with pride as I watched them <laughs> just both you know, light up and float towards the ceiling when they get to hear their words read, especially by people who uh, who play it beautifully. And the funny thing is, we do cold reading with those professionals. I sent them the script beforehand. But I have seen those actors get so into these student scripts. I mean, really, and play off of each other and find all these moments. And they're there because the kids, whether they know it or not, they built them in. Yes. So the actors come away saying this was a wonderful evening I'd do it for you again anytime so it's it's interesting but it's born out of creating in a workshop where they trust each other so they read for each other they critique for each other the one of the rules is the playwright is not allowed to follow along in their own copy of the script that they've got to like you know, that they've got it over yeah and that they have got to hear if the words work in space and time. Because theater is never about being able to flip back a few pages and go, wait, what was that? Uh, I just took them to see, I try every semester to take them to see one live theater event. Uh, because you can, you can speak all you want about the vocabulary of theater. But right. till they really see it in in place and in a context, it, it, you're missing something. True. Because uh, you're writing in 3D. And there's almost no other art form that writes in three dimensions. And so to understand that vocabulary is 
is vitally, vitally important. Yeah, it is. And uh, because they grew, you know, they grew up with jump cuts. They grew up with the camera angles. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes. help it. Television and film are so much a part of how we view things that, like Teflon, it's cre- it's crept yeah. into our bloodstream, yeah. our DNA. That's uh, a lovely So thought. a lot of what I try to do is to get them thinking about, would this work on theater? How would you do it? I, didn't, I have an independent uh, study player right now. I've done this a couple of times. I said, all right, you're not training in set design, but do me a favor. Go home and make up a floor plan. I don't even care if it's to scale. Make up a floor plan of where you think these things would happen on a stage. And they look at me, but they go home and they come back. And I say, it's always very interesting to see where they put the bulk of the set, which of the locations, and how they felt they did or didn't intertwine. I said, that's a portrait of how you are viewing this world you've created. Listen to it. Do you really need multiple real locations? Or can it be representational? Is there one place that's specific? Really, it's 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 a way of getting them viewing the the three dimensions of it. One other group I took to see uh, there's that wonderful production of the Thirty Nine Steps that was on Broadway and has been, then came back to Off Broadway. Right, right. Where yeah. where they where four actors recreated the whole story. One central guy was the hero. Uh, there was a woman who played several femme fatales within it, and then the other two guys, either by the shift of a hat or the picking up of a prop, mm-hmm. would instantly change the location, instantly change the uh, the situation, and just showing them the magic of transformation on the stage and how you're not tied down yes. to... Uh, to the standard things it's it's you know to, to me taking them that to that was a crucial crucial lesson no i agree with that it's uh, there are so many aspects to teaching theater and and making students and newbies uh, want to you know uh, people realize that you can do these things that you normally only see in much more heavily processed media like movies because you can, you can right. throw any CGI into a movie you want, bang, zoom, you know, you got a Death Star or something, you know, ridiculous like that. But to do something that critical with something so little, something so minute, okay? You know, yeah. Changing a hat, changing a, the, changing a detail, and all of a sudden you're someplace else and the audience runs with it, that is unbelievably eye-opening. That's it's magical, practically. I have another play of mine that's called um, Death by Misadventure, and it's based on a true story of two women who were electrocuted in Hyde Park during a rainstorm because the underwire in their brassieres acted as a lightning rod. Oh, ouch! There are many aspects of this story that I would share with you. Uh, there, I, could, I could do a half hour on this uh, show because I felt very guilty about writing it until I found different ways to approach the material. But anyhow, it's been staged many, many times. It's been done as a radio play. It's been done many, many different ways. And I didn't write a lot of stage directions because I didn't want to control 
how people interpreted the script. Sure. Well, one time some former students of mine who had a theater in a uh, in an old truck warehouse in the Dumbo section of Brooklyn. Right. Uh, it was it was an old parking uh, an old garage. And as those old garages did, they had a sliding metal door, you know, with the, with the uh, uh, what do they call this, the ridges, and there it's was a drain. Fine. And they did something that I had never considered possible. They started the play by having someone take a huge bucket of real water and throw it at the two actresses <laughs> who remained soaking wet for the rest of the time. It was the funniest thing I have ever seen. And, you know, using the restrictions of what they had, it was brilliant. For example, they wanted the thunder and lightning and the rain coming down. So this tall, the one character I didn't write, this tall, skinny kid who was another former student of mine, was pointing a hose at the thing. And as the water went down the corrugated door... It made the perfect sound of rain, and then when it was time for thunder, this tall skinny kid would just throw his entire body at the Absolutely. door and it. rattle the door, and it became a thunder sheet. I mean, it was really. It, How could you not? It was be seeing the play completely um, entertained by this. I, I I remain so in love with that particular version. And I've seen a lot of versions of that play, but it was just marvelous. It's nice that kid has now grown up to be a director and have his own theater company. Well, good so. for him. Yeah, it sounds like something was well deserved. Anyone in New York do the Barefoot Theater Productions? Uh, Frank Solorzano. He's a talented guy. Cool. Well, Judd, thank you so much for uh, being with us again. And hopefully it won't be too much uh, a shorter period of time before you join us for a third time. We'd love to have you back. Anytime. Hey, kids. Thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater that we haven't yet covered, oddly enough, or know someone in the theater world who'd make good chat, please send us a note at info at OnStageOffStage.org. Our intro and outro music is Surf Far, Surf Good by the composer Steve Channon. You can hear more of his work on SoundCloud. Onstage Offstage wishes to let its listeners know that we believe in and advocate for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace, without fear. We believe in zero tolerance for acts of hate and bigotry. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender orientation. On Stage, Off Stage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you. Yeah.